In the so-called Cairo calendar, each day of the year is associated with a particular deity or mythical event. These associations were believed to affect what could be done daily, making calendars similar to horoscopes. For example, the 29th day of the second month of spring was when the children of GEB rebelled against the Creator. Do nothing. On this day, the calendar warns. Some entries summarize well-known mythical incidents, such as the reconciliation of Horus and Seth. In contrast, others allude to very obscure myths, such as that of the lost children of Bidesh, the end of the New Kingdom. By the 11th century BCE, the kings who lived in the Eastern Delta had little influence over the country's south. The last king of the 20th dynasty, Ramesses XI, circa 1099 to 1069 BCE, had a tomb cut in the Valley of the Kings, but was probably never buried in it. In the Theban area, power had fallen into the hands of one family whose members served as generals in the army and high priests in the Temple of Karnak. Several family members gave themselves royal titles, and even after a new line of kings, the 21st dynasty took control in the north. A series of marriages between the two families kept the peace. Some of the most beautifully illustrated books of the dead were made for royal and aristocratic women who served as priestesses in the temples of Thebes during the 11th and 10th centuries BCE. It became the custom for elite burials to include a selection of spells from the Book of the Dead and a papyrus based on one or more royal underworld books. The Theban priesthood moved most royal mummies from their original resting places during this period, so the secret underworld books on the walls of their tombs became available for copying. Based on underworld books, the papyri are often called mythological papyri. They can consist almost entirely of drawings with just a few brief captions. Mythological episodes from texts of the 3rd millennium BCE onward, such as the Creator's engendering life for the separation of the earth and the sky, are illustrated for the first time on papyri and coffins of this period. These extraordinary papyri illustrate the Egyptian tendency to think in images. Language is rarely adequate to express the numinous. Instead, the Egyptian priesthood devised a complex system of visual symbols to convey difficult concepts without using words. In the 9th century BCE, the production of funerary papyri suddenly stopped. This may have resulted from disruptions in temple life caused by a civil war between the Thebans and a new dynasty of kings in the north. The kings of the 22nd dynasty were of Libyan descent, but they had completely adopted the Egyptian religion. They favoured the cult of the feline goddess Bastet and rebuilt part of her temple at Bubastis. Reliefs in the festival hall of Osorkan, the 2nd circa 874-850 BCE, show all the deities of Egypt gathering at Bubastis to honour the king's jubilee. Bastet was one of the goddesses who could take the role of the Eye of Ra, the fiery protector of the sun god and of every king. The cycle of myths associated with the Eye Goddess became increasingly prominent during the first millennium BCE. Most northern kings were buried in Tanis in tombs within the temple of Amon-Ra. Some of these tombs have versions of New Kingdom underworld books, such as the Book of the Day and the Book of the Night, inscribed on their walls. The temples of Tanis were adorned with Middle and New Kingdom statues brought from all over Egypt. This was more than an economic measure. Reusing old royal statues gave new structures an instant past and invoked the protective presence of the royal ancestors. 
Despite this tendency to look back on past glories, innovations did appear among small objects. A wide range of amulets in the form of deities was introduced during the Third Intermediate Period. These were probably used to protect the health and safety of the living, as well as the bodies of the dead. Some amulets depict mythological episodes, such as those in which Horus Harpoon, Seth or Isis, nurses the baby Horus in the marshes. The choice of such amulets suggests a widespread knowledge of the stories behind these images. Until the Third Intermediate Period, scenes of nursing goddesses had always shown a king playing the role of Horus as Horus. The child ceased to be so closely identified with the living king. He developed an important role in mythology and popular religion. By the 8th century BCE, Egypt was split into several regions ruled by petty kings and chieftains. The Theban area was controlled by a line of royal high priestesses, known as the Divine Adoratrix of Amun. In temple rituals, these priestesses acted the mythological role of the Hand of Atem, the partner of the Creator. Egypt's divisions were eventually ended by invaders from the south. Late period and Ptolemaic period dynasties, 25 through 30, and the Ptolemies 747 to 30 BCE. The first millennium BCE saw the rise and fall of a series of great empires. Egypt suffered invasions and occupations by the Nubians, the Assyrians, the Persians and the Greeks. So for most of this period, the country was either ruled by a foreign power or fighting for independence. Egypt's culture was under pressure from new ruling elites, yet many of the best sources for Egyptian myth date to this era. Indeed, some scholars need to recognize that Egypt had developed mythology before the late period. It is a common cultural phenomenon that after a change of rulers, religion or language, native people or scholarly incomers become anxious to record a country's traditions before they disappear. This often involves codifying these beliefs and traditions for the first time. Respect for ancient traditions was a policy of the Nubian kings, who ruled Egypt as the 25th dynasty. These kings came from an area of Nubia known as Kush. Their culture combined Nubian and Egyptian elements. The chief religious site in Kush was the holy mountain of Jebel Barkal, near ancient Napata, where there was a temple for Amun, Ra and Hathor as the Eye of Ra. King Paya, or Piank, and his brother King Shibakawa, or Chewbacca, were the first two kings of this dynasty to rule Egypt. A victory inscription of King Paya circa 747 to 716 BCE, references Egyptian deities and myths. It records that he seized the capital, Memphis, like a desert storm, just as Amun-Ra had commanded me. Some pyramid tombs of Nubian kings near Napata are inscribed with extracts from Old Kingdom pyramid texts. In Thebes, priests appointed by the Nubian kings revised and codified the Book of the Dead. Some of the spells they added contained passages probably in the Nubian language. Also dating to this Nubian period is the Shabaka Stone, with a copy of the text known as the Memphite Theology. The Memphite Theology. This text tells how the earth god Geb judged between the rival gods, Horus and Seth, and how Osiris was established as ruler of the underworld. It reconciles the separate creation myths of Atom of Heliopolis and Pitar of Memphis, and includes a first-person account by Pitar of how he created all life through his powers of thought and speech. This section has often been compared to the famous opening of St. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The whole text may have been read aloud during religious festivals. 
King Shibakawa, circa 716 to 702 BCE, claims to have had the Memphite theology copied onto stone because the original was eaten by worms. The new version, which was set up in the Temple of Ptah in Memphis, was to prove equally unlucky. The slab on which it was inscribed was eventually reused as a millstone, so parts of the text have been ground away. The preface to the Memphite theology states that Chiba Chuo thought this text worthy of preservation because it was found to be a work of the ancestors in the past. Egyptologists accepted Kabacha's word that this was a very ancient text and assigned it to the Old Kingdom or even the early dynastic period. Recent work has shown that the Memphite theology cannot be earlier than the late New Kingdom. It was rewritten under Chiba Chuo using a deliberately archaic style to give the contents added authority. Much of the Memphite theology is similar to creation accounts in the so-called Bremner Rhind Papyrus, which dates to around the 4th century BCE. Among the texts inscribed on this papyrus are rituals designed to attack the enemies of the king, the state, and the cosmos, and render them harmless. The book, Knowing the Sun's Transformations and Overthrowing Apophis, gives instructions on making models and drawings of enemies and destroying them by stabbing, trampling, burning and burying them. These sections are prefaced by speeches from the Creator God, describing the creation of life and the establishment of the divine order. This identifies the ritual as part of the continuing cosmic struggle. Until recently, the Bremner-Rhind Papyrus Cosmogony has received much less attention from scholars than the Memphite theology, partly because the former conforms to modern ideas of what a religious text should be like, whereas the latter was seen as belonging to the primitive world of magic. Of the two, the Bremner-Rhind Papyrus is more characteristic of how mythology was used in Egyptian culture in the 7th century BCE. Most Egyptians must have felt that the forces of chaos had triumphed when their country endured a series of brutal invasions by the Assyrians. Unlike most invaders, the Assyrians showed little respect for Egypt's gods. They looted the temples of Heliopolis and Thebes, taking away vast quantities of treasure. The Nubian kings were driven out of Egypt, but they continued to reign over Kush for almost a thousand years. The Assyrians needed more workforce to leave a large army in Egypt. They appointed Egyptians to govern the country on their behalf and collect tribute. A family from the region of Sais in the Delta collaborated with the Assyrians for a while. As soon as the Assyrians were occupied with problems elsewhere in their empire, this family made Egypt independent again and ruled as the 26th dynasty. These kings allowed Greek merchants to trade and settle in the delta. The cult center of the goddess Nith at Sais became one of the most important temples in Egypt. According to a later tradition, the secret of how the soul can unite with God was inscribed in hieroglyphs in the sanctuary at Sais. At this time, a script known as Demotic was introduced to write texts in the contemporary form of the Egyptian language. It soon replaced Hieratic for most purposes, Persians and Greeks. In 525 BCE, the Persian king Cambyses conquered Egypt and executed most Egyptian royal families. It is probably only a legend that Cambyses showed his contempt for Egyptian gods by stabbing the sacred APIs, bull. The Persians did not try to impose their religion on Egypt and were willing to honor Egyptian deities. The innovative reliefs in the Temple of Hibis in the Western Desert were mainly carved under Darius I, one of the Persian kings who made up the 27th dynasty. 
The reliefs include some very unusual forms of deities. These forms and the epithets used in the captions, such as Atom Scarab, who appeared for the first time, helped to define the deities' mythological roles. During the first period of Persian rule, the Greek historian Herodotus of Halicarnassus, circa 484 to 420 BCE, visited Egypt. Book two of his Historia describes Egypt's geography, history, customs and marvels. Some classicists and Egyptologists think that Herodotus made up his account from travellers' tales, but others believe he is a reliable eyewitness and takes everything he writes seriously. Herodotus claims to have talked with Egyptian priests in several important religious centres, but his information mainly seems to derive from Memphis and the Eastern Delta. He argued that the priests' knowledge was important to humanity, because unlike the Greeks, the Egyptians had access to ancient and continuous records. Herodotus thought it possible to identify many Egyptian deities with Greek ones, so he calls Osiris, Dionysus and Horus Apollo. It became a general practice among classical writers to use Greek names for Egyptian deities, but these cross-cultural identifications are only sometimes consistent. Herodotus says more about religious architecture and rituals than about mythology. As for the stories told by the Egyptians, he wrote, let whoever finds them credible use them. He does not relate the full Osiris myth because he saw it as comparable to the Greek mystery cults, which devotees had to vow to keep secret. Herodotus outlines some brief myths to explain curious features of buildings or statues, such as why the temple grounds at Buto contained a floating island or Amun could be shown with a ram's head. Unlike the tales told to gullible tourists by unofficial Egyptian guides at the monuments today, Herodotus's bizarre legends about some Egyptian kings, such as King Mycerinus or Menkara, raping his daughter and burying her inside a cow, may have reflected contemporary folk tales. The Egyptians had a long tradition of telling unflattering stories about past kings between 404 and 343 BCE. Several dynasties of Egyptian-born kings were able to keep the Persians out of Egypt. The three kings of the 30th dynasty instituted a style of art and architecture to continue under their foreign successors. A 30th dynasty mythological text about the reigns of Shu and Geb defines a ruler's duties as defending Egypt from foreign enemies, maintaining the country's defensive walls and irrigation systems, and rebuilding the temples of the gods. A huge granite temple was begun at El Hager for the goddess Ishtar, whose cult was becoming increasingly important. Later, legend claimed that King Nectanebo's failure, the 2nd 362-343 BCE, to complete a temple for the god Onuachu, led to his defeat when the Persians invaded again. This time, the Persians punished the Egyptians by destroying some important temples. The second period of Persian rule was brief, because the Persian Empire was soon under attack from the Greeks, led by the young king of Macedonia, Alexander the Great. Alexander liberated Egypt in 332 BCE and was crowned king in the Temple of Ptah at Memphis during his stay in Egypt. He declared himself a living god and founded the city of Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast. After Alexander's death, one of his generals, a Macedonian called Ptolemy, made himself ruler and then king of Egypt. The Ptolemy family were to rule Egypt for around 300 years, Alexandria and Memphis. Under the Ptolemies, the country was governed from Alexandria, and nearly all the important posts in the government went to Greek settlers rather than to Egyptians. King Ptolemy, 
the second 285 to 246 BCE, founded a great library in the 3rd century BCE. The contents of the famous Library of Alexandria have been lost owing to fires, earthquakes and tidal waves. But at 700,000 books, scrolls probably contained little about Egyptian mythology. Greek philosophy, science and literature were the main interests of the scholars at the Musion, a proto-university attached to the library. Most members of the Ptolemy family never learned the Egyptian language, but they were conscious that they were ruling a multicultural society and needed the support of influential Egyptians as a symbol of cultural fusion. The Ptolemies established the cult of a new god, Serapis, who combined Egyptian APIs and Osiris features with aspects of Greek deities such as Zeus and Dionysus. Many of the Ptolemies were crowned in the Temple of Ptah at Memphis, and they often contributed to the cost of religious ceremonies in the ancient capital. Ptolemaic kings and queens were happy to identify with Egyptian deities and rule in their names. They encouraged the Egyptians to worship them as divine rulers. The Memphis decree of King Ptolemy, the 5th 205 to 180 BCE, ordered the setting up of Egyptian-style statues of Ptolemy, who has preserved Egypt in every temple. In the decree, Ptolemy refers to slaughtering rebels just as Ra and Horus, son of Osiris, had slaughtered those who rebelled against them for the first time. The Memphis decree is best known from Greek copies and two Egyptian forms on the Rosetta Stone. Among the cults supported by the Ptolemies was that of the API's bull, who lived in a special enclosure at the Temple of Ptah. When an API's bull died, it was mummified and given a funeral as elaborate and expensive as a king's. A papyrus from the 1st century BCE summarizes the rituals to be performed, including mythological dramas. The conflict between Horus and Seth and the victory of R.A. over Apophis were acted out on boats on the lake of the Temple of Ptah. This is typical of how Egyptian rituals lifted events from ordinary times and made them part of the whole sequence of mythological history. Two young women, preferably twin sisters, played the roles of Isis and Nephthys to mourn the APIs. Bull, as if he had been Osiris himself. Versions of the laments they sang have survived in the Bremna Rhine Papyrus and other sources. The laments are notable for their emotional intensity. Osiris is mourned as a king and a beloved husband and brother. Anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss has pointed out that although poetry is notoriously difficult to translate from one language to another, myths often pass easily between languages and cultures because their content is far more important than how they are told. Greeks and other immigrants found the joys and sorrows of Isis to have meaning in their lives. Isis and Osiris came to be the most famous Egyptian deities among foreigners, but the native Egyptians continued to worship a multiplicity of deities. Priests and temples under the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies undertook massive temple rebuilding programs to legitimize their rule in the eyes of the Egyptians and their gods. Native Egyptian society was more temple-centered than ever, and the priesthood became the custodians of Egyptian culture. Working for a temple was virtually the only advancement available to talented Egyptians. The priesthood became a hereditary caste, jealous of its rights and privileges. Yet this was not a period of decadence. Egyptian art, literature and theology continued to flourish and develop. The architecture of the Ptolemaic temples reflects their use by the general population. Inside the enclosure walls were sanatoria, where people could visit statues with healing powers or spend the night hoping a deity would come to them in a dream and tell them how their illness could be cured.
Crowds took part in the annual festival of Osiris and left miniature mummy figures of Osiris in special shrines. Many temples kept large numbers of the type of animals sacred to the temple's main deity. People could pay for these animals to be ritually sacrificed and then mummified to act as messengers to the realm of the gods. Wealthier temple visitors continued the late period practice of dedicating beautifully made bronze images of deities. An area of the temple that may have been a particular focus for women was the Mamisi birthhouse. These structures were decorated with texts and scenes describing the conception and birth of a deity, most usually a form of Horus. The Ptolemaic period commonly inscribed religious texts such as detailed festival calendars, hymn cycles and ritual scripts on temple walls. This was thought to allow the temple to function, even if nobody performed the rites. Some of the most interesting texts are found in the extraordinarily well-preserved Temple of Horus at Edfu, built between 237 and 57 BCE. Scenes and inscriptions on the walls have allowed scholars to reconstruct annual ceremonies, such as the Festival of the Beautiful Union, which celebrated the coming together of Horus and Hathor. The Festival of Victory commemorated the triumph of Horus over Seth and his followers. The conflict has been acted out on and around Temple Lake, a second mythological drama. The legend of the winged disc has Horus defending R.A. against his enemies, a role usually taken by the A.I. goddess. The temple's foundation is traced back to the first time in a series of texts, sometimes known as the Edfu Cosmogony. Every major Ptolemaic temple has had its own creation myth, with the temple's principal deity playing the role of creator. Texts of this type, such as the Khonsu Cosmogony at Karnak, use wordplay to incorporate the myths of other creator deities and show them as aspects of the same phenomenon. At some temples, priesthood members use their knowledge of history and legend to devise stories to support their claims to land and privileges. The Famine, Stella on Sehel Island in the First Cataract, and the Khonsu Stella at Thebes are examples of Ptolemaic charter myths in which deities interact with historical figures. Among the inscriptions on the walls of Ptolemaic temples, are lengthy lists of all the sacred places in the 42 Gnomes districts of Egypt. The richness of this mythical geography is brought out by Papyrus Jumalhak, an illustrated selection of the myths and legends of the Jackal Gnome, the 17th district of Upper Egypt. There were similar collections for other regions. Most of the brief narratives are about the conflict between Horus and Seth, emphasizing the struggle to protect the body of Osiris. Episodes from this cycle become etiological myths explaining topographical features or ritual elements such as why Egyptian priests wear leopard skins. These are national gods, localized rather than local gods, universalized. Papyrus Jumilhak was not just an antiquarian collection, its texts were recited during religious festivals. The first Egyptian to write about Egyptian religion purely as a scholarly exercise may have been a priest called Manato who lived in the late 4th and early 3rd centuries BCE. Manito was one of the educated elite who could understand the hieroglyphic script and earlier forms of the Egyptian language, but he also learned Greek. His ambition was to explain and justify Egyptian culture to outsiders, particularly the Greeks. He is famous for writing a history of Egypt that only survives in excerpts from later classical writers. Manito was credited with at least seven other works, including books on Egyptian festivals, rituals, and ancient religion. Sadly, no manuscripts of these books have yet been found. 
Less literature has survived from the first millennium BCE than in the Middle and New Kingdoms. One virtually complete late period story written in Hieratic, it is anti-establishment in tone and features a cowardly and lustful king and greedy and heartless priests. The hero Mira enters the underworld in his king's place and is helped by a goddess to avenge himself on those who have betrayed him. There are fragments of mythological tales in Demotic, including at least one about the crowning of Horus and Seth. Some interesting mythological narratives survive from the late and Ptolemaic periods inscribed in hieroglyphs on special statues and stelae used in healing magic, Isis and Horus. Magical statues and stelae usually feature a carved figure of Horus in child form, overcoming dangerous animals. Such stelae are known as Sippy or Horus on the crocodile stele. The most famous object of this type is the Metonic Stella, now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York. This is inscribed with spells for driving away dangerous animals and reptiles, or curing their poisonous bites and stings. These creatures were both hazards of daily life and symbols of the chaos that constantly threatened the divine order surrounding the central figure of Horus. On most Sippy is a grotesque array of deities in their most terrifying and powerful forms. These images complement the text of the spells, but do not illustrate them. The power of the words and images could be absorbed by drinking or bathing in water poured over the stella. Most of the spell's center is on a briefly stated mythical event, such as Ra Atem transforming himself into a mongoose to kill Apophis. A few are fleshed out into narratives with lively dialogue. In the longest of these dramatized spells, Ishtar is imprisoned by Seth, but escapes to the marshes of Chemis, where she gives birth to Horus. Isis is depicted as oppressed by powerful males struggling with poverty and constantly fearing losing her child. This was probably the lot of most ordinary women in ancient Egypt. The Sippy texts raise the question that must be answered by every religion. If God is good, why do innocent children suffer? An angry attitude toward divine indifference is put in the mouth of Ishtar. Her challenge to the sun god to help her dying child is one of Egyptian literature's most powerful emotional passages. Ra responds by sending Thoth to cure Horus. Like every woman, Isis has triumphed, and the spell promises that every child will be saved because Horus was saved. Sippy has been found in houses and tombs, but large examples such as the Metonic Stela would originally have been set up in an outer area of a temple, Ptolemaic period. Temples are decorated with endless scenes of gods and pharaohs, but the absence of specific royal names from some cartouches suggests that it was often difficult for the priests to know who was in charge of the country, or for how long. From the second century BCE onward, there were frequent wars between rival members of the Ptolemy family and rebellions by native Egyptians in the first century BCE. One of the feuding Ptolemies unwisely sought help from Rome, the city becoming the greatest military power in the ancient world. The Romans were eager for an excuse to get hold of the gold and the grain that Egypt produced. The Greek writer Diodorus Siculus of Sicily visited northern Egypt in the mid-first century BCE. In his description of the country, he picked out elements of Egyptian religion that he found bizarre, such as the reverential treatment of sacred animals. Diodorus summarized the myth of Osiris, including his murder by his brother Typhon or Seth. He explained the symbolic tombs of Osiris found in temples all over Egypt by a myth in which Isis deceives the priests in each temple into thinking that they have the true body of God.
This literal-minded interpretation points to the differences between Greek and Egyptian thought. Soon after Diodorus's visit, Rome was interfering in Egyptian affairs. The Roman general, Julius Caesar, took part in a civil war and secured the position of the last great member of the Ptolemy family, Queen Cleopatra, the 7th 51 to 30 BCE. After Julius Caesar returned to Rome, Cleopatra gave birth to a son, Ptolemy Caesarian. Cleopatra used Egyptian myth to political advantage by identifying herself with the goddess Isis and her fatherless son with Horus the child. Cleopatra joined forces with another Roman general, Mark Antony, a few years later to establish a new empire in the east. Mark Antony's patron deity was Dionysus, the Greek god generally identified with Osiris. In 30 BCE, Antony and Cleopatra were defeated by Octavian, who subsequently became the first emperor of Rome under the title of Augustus. Egypt was reduced to being a province of the Roman Empire, Roman period 30 BCE to 395 CE. For a time, Roman rule had little impact on the country's religious life. Roman emperors replaced Ptolemaic kings on the temple walls. Strabo, a geographer who visited Egypt in the early Roman period, stressed the country's past glories but was able to describe flourishing cult temples. Under Augustus and later Trajan, 98 to 117 CE, and Hadrian 117 to 138 CE, new temples were built for Egyptian and Nubian deities. The language of temple inscriptions was still Neo-Middle Egyptian, written in a form of hieroglyphic script that was increasingly difficult to read. The long tradition of speculation about the first time continued. The Temple of Khnum at Esna, which largely dates to the first century CE, is inscribed with hymns detailing the roles of Khnum and the goddess Neith as creator deities. Chairman and Alexandrian, who became one of Emperor Nero's tutors, described the Egyptian priests of his day as pious philosophers who were the custodian of esoteric knowledge sought by people of many races. One of the seekers who made good use of such knowledge was the Greek writer and thinker Plutarch, circa 46 to 126 CE. Plutarch is best remembered as a historian whose biographies of leaders such as Coriolanus and Mark Antony formed the main source for several of Shakespeare's plays. Plutarch was fascinated by Egyptian religion and wrote concerning Isis and Osiris. He could not speak or read any form of the Egyptian language, so he had to rely on conversations through interpreters and speculations about Egyptian deities in the works of earlier classical writers. Plutarch's narrative of the life and death of Osiris and the wanderings of his widow Isis is the one commonly used in popular books on Egyptian mythology. Plutarch had few reservations about describing the murder of Osiris and the mutilation of God's body. Much of Plutarch's Osiris narrative must have been based on stories and customs in Egypt during the first century CE, but this does not make it a reliable source for earlier periods. The myth of Osiris had been developing and changing for over 2500 years before Plutarch was born but Plutarch's written sources could only take him back about 600 years. Plutarch gave alternate versions of the story, some of which he thought might be more authentic than others. His stated purpose in writing the book was to seek the universal truths that he believed to lie behind the myths and beliefs of all cultures. He quotes other writers' far-fetched allegorical interpretations of Egyptian myth. His own comments on the nature of myth often sound surprisingly modern, 
He did not believe that myths described events that had actually happened. He is scathing about people who interpret all myths in terms of natural phenomena such as crop cycles or eclipses, saying one should take the greatest heed and care, not unconsciously, to reduce and resolve the divine to terms of winds, fluxes, sowings, ploughing and terrestrial occurrences, and seasonal changes like those who explain Dionysus as wine and Hephaestus as flame. Plutarch saw the mythology of Isis in particular as a profound expression of the benevolent face of the divine. To his credit as a scholar, he related incidents, such as when Isis struck a child dead with her glance, that do not easily fit this view. Roman period hymns in Greek and Egyptian speak of all gods and goddesses as mere forms of the great creator Isis. One thing that made the Osiris and Isis cults popular with foreigners was the promise of a happy afterlife for all the virtuous dead, whatever their status had been in life. This was a concept that was rare among ancient religions. Vignettes of the judgment of the dead feature prominently in the Book of Breathing, a condensed version of the Book of the Dead, placed in burials during the Ptolemaic and Roman periods. A new text known as the Book of Traversing Eternity was sometimes combined with the Book of Breathing. This contained spells to allow the spirit of a dead person to return to earth to visit temples and participate in the festivals of Osiris. The scholar-priests who compiled these books presumably drew on ancient texts preserved in temple libraries, but there is evidence that such priests were also open to influences from outside Egyptian culture, demotic literature. Under the Roman administration, Greek remained the chief language of intellectual and literary life. Many Roman period papyri have survived, particularly from the Fayum region and the town of Oxyrhynchus. Among these are literary papyri in Greek and demotic from temple libraries or priests' houses. Much of this literature may originally have been composed in the Ptolemaic period. Some of the demotic literature shows foreign influence. A fragmentary tale of a war between an Egyptian prince and an Amazon queen has been compared with Greek myths such as the combat of Achilles and Penthesilea or the conquest of the Amazon queen Hippolyta by Theseus. The demotic version is told from the point of view of the queen of the land of women. She appeals to Isis to help her against the Egyptian prince who is compared with the chaos monster Apophis. The war between order and chaos is the underlying theme of the myth of the Eye of the Sun, also known as the myth of the distant goddess. The outline of this myth can be pieced together from rituals inscribed on the walls of Ptolemaic and early Roman period temples. A literary version of Demotic is the longest mythical narrative in Egyptian to survive from any period. The Eye of the Sun text has been put together from many different sources and was probably read aloud to entertain people. It includes passages of virtuoso descriptive writing, elaborate praises of Egyptian culture that would have gone down well with a native audience and animal fables. The god Thoth tells these short moral tales as part of his plan to lure the angry goddess back to Egypt to resume her place in the divine order as the sun. God's chief defender, Thoth's story of a lion helped by a mouse has the same plot as a shorter fable attributed to Aesop, an enslaved Greek thought to have lived in the 6th century BCE. Incidents from other fables in the Eye of the Sun have been recognized in drawings dating to the late 2nd millennium BCE. So Egypt had a tradition of animal fables centuries before Aesop. Another genre with a long history in Egypt was stories about magicians. These were usually set in the past, 
like the Middle Kingdom sequence of stories about Old Kingdom magicians in Papyrus, Westcar, one badly preserved demotic story cycle, tells how the Third Dynasty official, Imhotep, used magic to help the armies of Egypt. Very similar stories are told about Nectanebo, the second in the Greek Alexander romance of the second century CE, which is probably based on a lost Egyptian original. Another story cycle was centered on a prince called Setna, a character based on an actual son of Ramesses, the second prince Kemwaset. Part of one of these stories is known from the 4th century BCE, but the most complete versions come from the early Roman period. The proper uses of magic and other types of secret knowledge form one of the main themes of these stories. Land of Magicians Egypt was renowned as a land of priest magicians by the Roman period. The ancient city of Memphis was thought to be the place where they learned their secret craft. In the first of the stories about Setna, the prince steals the magical Book of Thoth from an ancient tomb near Memphis. He ignores the warnings of the ghosts who inhabit the tomb and is punished by horrible hallucinations until he returns to the forbidden book. Several manuscripts from the 1st century BCE to the 2nd century CE preserve parts of an actual Book of Thoth. This begins with a dialogue between a person seeking divine wisdom and Thoth, the god of wisdom and secret knowledge. The seeker hopes to gain some of the powers mentioned in Ketna's magic book, such as understanding the speech of birds and animals and seeing R.A. in his sunboat. The Setna story seems to warn against using such knowledge to gain earthly power rather than spiritual enlightenment. In the second story of the cycle, Setna is allowed to pay a brief visit to the underworld to see Osiris judging the dead. Such a spirit voyage also forms part of the Book of Thoth, acting as an initiation rite. In the Demotic story, the scenario of the traditional underworld books is fictionalized into a personal journey. Some of the horrors Setna sees, such as souls tormented by tasks they can never complete, seem to be based on Greek visions of the afterlife. In the third story, Setna's son saw Osiris, meaning son of Osiris, turns out to be a reincarnation of a great magician of the past, a concept that may be more Greek than Egyptian. A battle against malevolent Nubian sorcerers reflects contemporary fears of the powerful Nubian kingdom to the south, which the Romans never succeeded in conquering. Several magical papyri of the Roman period have survived, mainly from Thebes. Most of their spells are Greek, but four papyri of the 3rd century CE contain elaborate spells in Demotic. The Demotic spells often utilize Egyptian deities in their traditional mythical roles for dubious purposes. So, for example, the myth of the rape of the goddess Tefnut is invoked in a spell to separate a woman from her husband. The spells in Greek are populated by figures borrowed from Egyptian, Greek and Roman myth and Aramaic and Jewish religion. Egypt was a cosmopolitan country and the Roman period was an age of religious synthesis. This is also apparent in the Greek texts known as the Hermetica, like the Book of Thoth. Hermetic texts were usually a dialogue between a disciple and a deity or a revered sage. The deity is most commonly Hermes, the Greek god identified with Thoth. Some hermetic features include Isis or Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine, identified with the deified Egyptian sage Imhotep. The instructing deity sometimes relates myths about the beginning or the end of the world. Many spells in the magical papyri claim the power to summon visions of deities. In the hermetic, such visions can lead to a truer understanding of the meaning of life and the nature of the divine. 
The Hermetica were principally a development of Greek philosophy. It used to be argued that the Hermetica were written and read only by Greeks, until some Hermetic texts in Coptic were found. Coptic was a form of the Egyptian language used from the 2nd century CE onward. It was written in the Greek alphabet, with six signs borrowed from the Demotic script. Most scholars now agree that Egyptian priests' traditional wisdom and knowledge of Egyptian myth were among the elements that made up the Hermetic. Some of the Hermetic have much in common with the teachings of Gnosticism, which promised salvation through Gnosis' knowledge of the self. Gnostics rejected the material world as evil. The point of view was alien to traditional Egyptian thought, which had always celebrated the created world as part of the divine order. Manichaeism, a religious movement that originated in Iran, was more sympathetic. Egyptians could see its emphasis on a perpetual struggle between the forces of darkness and light as a version of their unending war between chaos and order. However, the real challenge to traditional Egyptian beliefs was to come from another new religion, Christianity. At first, Christianity was just one of the many religions thriving in Egypt during the second and third centuries CE. Christians were brutally persecuted for refusing to acknowledge that the Roman emperors were gods. Some early Christian writers, such as the 2nd century CE Bishop Clement of Alexandria, are useful though hostile witnesses on Egyptian religion during the 4th century CE, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. The date usually given for the end of pharaonic culture is 395 CE. This was the year when the Roman Empire was divided into two, Egypt became part of the Eastern or Byzantine Empire, and most of its pagan temples were closed down by the Emperor's order. The Isis Temple at Philae on Egypt's southern border stayed open until the 6th century CE because it was protected by Nubian tribes who still revered the goddess. The latest known hieroglyphic texts are from Philae. When no longer anyone left who could read the ancient texts, knowledge of the Egyptian gods and their myths gradually died out. This change of religion was far more significant for Egyptian culture than all the previous changes of government, post-Pharaonic Egypt. The three centuries in which Egypt was predominantly Christian are often called the Coptic period. Christian monasticism first developed in the deserts of Egypt, and the great monasteries partially took the place of temples in Egyptian society. Christian chroniclers prove that some Egyptians clung to the old beliefs as late as the 6th century CE. A few magical texts of this period still mention the myths of Isis and the Horus child, but most replace them with anecdotes about the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus. The last stories about the gods of Egypt tell of their defeat by Coptic saints in the 7th century CE. Egypt was invaded first by the Persians and then by the Arabs. The Arabs brought with them the Muslim religion, but many of the native Egyptians, the Copts, remained Christian. The Coptic language fell out of general use around 1000 CE, but it has continued to be used in the liturgies of the Coptic Church up to the present day. For centuries, Egypt was part of an Arab empire ruled by caliphs in Damascus or Baghdad. The most famous of these caliphs was Harun al-Rashid, who features in the Arabian Nights Entertainment, a vast collection of stories compiled in medieval Egypt. Egypt's greatest medieval leader was Saladin, 1169 to 1193 CE, who defended Egypt and Palestine against the Christian Crusaders. Arabic literature flourished in Egypt, and one of its themes was the lost treasures and secrets of the ancient pagan sites. 
Medieval Christian pilgrims who visited Egypt because it was a Bible land brought back descriptions of the pyramids, which they generally identified with the granaries of Joseph. A crucial part of the Renaissance, which began in 14th century CE Italy, was the rediscovery of classical texts. During the 15th and 16th centuries CE, Hermetica from Egypt was wrongly thought to be the world's most ancient religious document. This aroused great interest in Egyptian religion and its relationship to Judaism and Christianity. The myths of Osiris, Isis and Horus became the subject of sermons and essays from the 16th through the 18th centuries CE. There were many attempts to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs until the end of the 18th century. CE. Most of Egypt was difficult and dangerous for Western travelers to visit. When the French leader Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Egypt in 1798, he took many scholars and artists. The survivors wrote and illustrated a multi-volume description of Egypt, contributing to a Europe-wide fascination for all things Egyptian. Among the antiquities found during Napoleon's campaign was the Rosetta Stone. This was one of the documents the brilliant French linguist Jean-Francois Champollion used to decipher the hieroglyphic script. The rage for collecting Egyptian antiquities meant papyri and inscribed objects ended up in museums and private collections worldwide. These primeval waters, known as the New or the Noon, continued to surround the world even after creation and were thought of as the ultimate source of the Nile. When personified as a deity, none could be called the father and mother of the Creator because the Creator was thought of as coming into existence within the Noon after creation. Qualities of the primeval state, such as its darkness, were retrospectively endowed with consciousness and became a group of deities known as the Eight, or the Ogdoad of Hermopolis. The Eight were imagined as amphibians and reptiles, fertile creatures of the dark primeval slime. They were the forces that shaped the Creator, or even the first manifestations of the Creator, to become the fathers and mothers of life. They had to change, or in some accounts to die. Several temples claim to be the burial place of these primeval deities. Amun and his female counterpart, Amunet, were often regarded as part of the eight and personified hidden power. When Amun became a national god, a new theology made Amun the invisible, unknowable force that began the movement toward an independent life. In some accounts, the eight joined together to be fertilized by the serpent seed, Amun Chemo TV. The first primeval god gave birth to the primeval gods. The serpent may have been considered an appropriate form for the spirit of the Creator because of its undivided body, or because it periodically renewed itself by shedding its skin. When Creator gods such as Amon or Adam are spoken of as serpents, they usually represent the positive aspect of chaos as an energy force. But they had a negative counterpart in the great serpent Apophis. Apophis represented the destructive aspect of chaos that constantly tried to overwhelm all individual beings and reduce everything back to its primeval state of oneness. So even before creation began, the world contained the elements of its own destruction. Emergence of the Creator. Summary. The Creator attains consciousness and becomes lonely. They differentiate the elements of chaos by speaking their names. The first light or the first sound begins the process of creation. The Creator appears as the Sun God. He may be born to a cow, emerge from a lotus on the water, or from an egg or a light in the form of a bird on the first mound of solid land. The Creator was the unique one in the none who existed in this womb-like environment as one who is in his egg. 
The creator was in an inert state, yet this state contained the potential for all life. Passages in the coffin texts stress that the self-created. God came into being alone for a group-oriented culture like the Egyptians. Such loneliness must have been almost unimaginable. The creator remained alone until their heart became effective, and they began to think and feel. In coffin texts, spell 76, the creator here, Adam, brings eight gods into existence by speaking with the noon, presumably separating the elements of chaos by naming them. Other texts refer to the creator's driving back the primeval waters, perhaps by the power of spoken command, to create a space to begin the work of creation. Images of emergence. The primal event of the emergence of the creator, to dispel the watery silent darkness, could be represented in many different ways. No single image or narrative was considered sufficient to express such a wonder. Egyptian cosmogony's creation accounts often combine several traditions about the Creator, but rarely in any temporal framework. The first act of the Creator might be an exhalation of breath or a great cry. The first light came with the Creator's first appearance as the sun's life-giving power. In coffin texts, this manifestation could be pictured as an eye or a fiery bird, spell 75. Although the Creator is still alone at noon, they send out their eyes to illumine the darkness and search for other life. Another image of the first sunrise was a blue lotus rising above the surface of the noon. From the new kingdom onward, a naked child or a ram-headed figure was shown sitting on the lotus to represent the newborn sun. The fertile aspect of the noon could be personified as the goddess Mehet Verit, whose name means the great flood or the great swimmer. She was usually shown as a cow and was considered the mother of all the primeval beings, including Apophis. Mehet Verit was envisaged as giving birth to the sun child and lifting him up on her horns. A New Kingdom hymn tells us that the sky became gold with the first light and the primeval waters like lapis lazuli. The sun might also be considered emerging from a cosmic egg laid by a primeval bird or less often by a snake or a crocodile. The role of the primeval bird is to break the silence. Some cosmogonies allude to a goose, the great honker or cackler, whose strident cry was the first sound. The shining Bennu bird brought the first noise and light to the noon. The creation myths inscribed in the Edfu temple give this role to a falcon who alights on a floating mass of vegetation. Alternatively, the first bird was said to have found a resting place on the first mound of dry land. The creator could only become fully active once there was a place to exist. At this stage, the noon was considered a great swamp from which the first land, the primeval mound, suddenly emerged. This mound could be personified as the god Tatanen. The rising land Tatanen, often identified with Pitar, could also be called the father of the creator. One of the sacred books at Edfu was the Book of the Mounds for the first time. This presents a primeval landscape of mounds, water and reeds, close to what the Nile Valley must have looked like before it was settled by the first Egyptians. The Creator could now begin creating the world and its inhabitants. Creation. Summary. Several deities could be identified at different periods and in various theological centers, with the Creator who emerged from the primeval waters. These Creator deities include the gods Atom Ras, often combined as Ra Atom, Shu Pitar, Knum, and Amon Ra, and the goddesses Neith, Hathor, and Isis. Important stages in the creation process were the establishment of Mart, 
the divine order, the division of beings into male and female, and the separation of earth and sky. The Egyptian cosmos consisted of a divine realm in the upper sky, the earth with Egypt as its center, and the duat or dot, the underworld that would become the realm of the dead. The Creator produced other deities and lesser beings, such as people and animals, the one who made himself into millions. In many Egyptian sources, the creation of life involves three elements, the creation of a body, the transfer to that body of some part of the divine essence of the Creator, and the animation of the body by the breath of life. Some Creator deities were more strongly associated with one of these elements than others. Kanum, for example, was chiefly a creator of bodies, whereas Shu and Amun-Ra were gods of the unseen breath of life. The second element, the transfer of the divine essence, eventually led to the concept that all deities were all living beings made not just by a transcendent creator, but were, in some sense, forms of the creator from the new kingdom onward. This was a distinctive feature of Egyptian religious thought. The creator was sometimes referred to as the one who made himself into millions, or he who made himself into millions of God's creation, could be seen as a process of differentiation in which one original force was gradually divided without necessarily diminishing itself into the diverse elements that made up the universe. How this could have happened was the subject of much speculation, the heart and the tongue, the intellectual powers that enabled the creator to bring him or herself into existence and to create other beings were sometimes conceptualized as deities. The most important of these were the gods Seer and Heka. Seer was the power of perception or insight, which allowed the Creator to visualize other forms. Who was the power of authoritative speech, which enabled the Creator to bring things into being by naming them in coffin texts? Spell 335. Who and Seer are said to be with their father, Atim, daily. In the illustrated underworld books of the New Kingdom, these two deities were often shown accompanying the Creator Sun God. The power by which the thoughts and commands of the Creator became a reality was Heka, meaning magic. In Coffin Text Spell 261, the god Heka claims to have been with the Creator even in the primeval era. In the Cosmogony of Neith, recorded in the Roman period temple at Esna, this goddess creates the whole world with seven magic words. When Isis came to be worshipped as a Creator deity during the same period, she was called the Mistress of the Word. In the beginning, from at least as early as the New Kingdom, the god Pitar could represent the creative mind. Then Seer was identified as the heart and tongue of Pitar. This concept is expounded in the so-called Memphite theology and in various hymns to Pitar. The ancient Egyptians believed the heart was the organ of thought and feeling, so Pitar was said to have made the world after planning it in his heart. It was through what the heart plans and the tongue commands that everything was made.